to the Native Informant Podcast. Thank you for having me. It sounds so... Um, Official. Intimidating. It should be. Informant is giving me undercover secret spy energy. Pretty much. Am I going to be saying things that... Absolutely. Absolutely. So I wanted to hit the ground running considering the fact that we've been planning this podcast for at least 4,000 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it stemmed from a really interesting conversation that was around the sort of umbrella of identity, multicultural identity, multiracial mm-hmm. identity, mm-hmm. and how that's seen in certain different contexts, whether it's in the West or in the Middle mm-hmm. East or whatnot. And so I wanted to expand on that conversation that we had and sort of get your views on how do you define identity? Then subsequently, how do you identify multi-racial or multi-ethnic identity? What I'm hearing is that I've inspired this whole podcast. So first, let me say you're welcome. It's taken four years for Sarah to make this happen, which is a terrible turnover rate. Um, but every time Sarah and I come together, there's always an incredible conversation around culture and identity. One of the things I think why we became really close friends is because we resonate on so much, but also because we differ on so much. So much of our experience is really different. Me being like, London boy with like, you know, a heritage and descent from the region. You want to raise abroad, but being from here. And then you also have like a reverse kind of association with this place. So we have different starting places, but like similar intersections and, and kind of cross points. I think every conversation is something different and it's such a multi-layered and such a deep conversation that we've never really come to some sort of like end game with it or some sort of like result. And that's ultimately what identity is for me. It's this constantly fluid notion of self. I think when I struggled with identity, it's when I've had an idea of it being something quite static and formed and defined. But as I've grown older, I've started to realize that it's constantly moving and growing with you. Um, And if you allow it to be so, then your conviction and your comfort with your identity will also feel a lot more um, validated and safe as opposed to trying to coin it and stuff it into a box, which probably other people have tried to put on you. So investigating that is always fun because every time we meet, whether it's tomorrow or whether it's like next month or next year, we've arrived at some sort of different um, destination as a result of that internal dialogue we have with identity. But yeah, like my work has been an investigation of it. I'm constantly trying to figure it out. Like I'm a London boy born and raised, but I'm Yemeni, Indonesian, Kenyan, Pakistani, very multi-hyphenated in terms of cultural heritage. So as a youth growing up in London, which was home, but not really home because you weren't really part of the kind of British identity that Britain put out there, you're yearning for some sort of belonging or validation from somewhere. So I had all these cultures that I had to try and find a place in. Um, and then through the period of your life, you kind of, you, you derive sort of lots of lessons in that process and that journey. Um, and uh, there is no beginning, middle, end. Like I said, it's a process. But when people ask you, where are you from? What is the sort of, I guess, identity marker that you gravitate towards the most? Um, when people say I'm from, I guess it kind of changes depending on who I'm speaking to, right? Um, the question in of itself holds inherent power. Um, and I think I've become so attuned and so sensitive to who's asking it. I know what kind of asking they're expecting. So you code switch? Naturally. I think part of being someone who's multi-hyphenated in the West, you naturally do it like automatically it's like a it's like a gear you tap into without really realizing you've tapped into it and i find that very easy to do not to say that i'm like um hiding elements of myself i'm always my full self but i i've also learned how to communicate to people from very different backgrounds so some people i give i'll give the short answer some people i'll give the long answer to sometimes i want to assert myself and make it a statement with my identity sometimes i just want to kind of go under covers a bit and, and allow myself to be who i am outside of the way that i think they might identify me as so 
It depends. It depends who's asking. When you think about Western identity being from the position of individualism, whilst Middle Eastern or Arab identity is more from the position of collectivism, mm. which one do you feel is the one that you lean into the most when it comes to the way that you present yourself or project yourself in, in the public sphere? I think I will naturally, and, and, and I've been thinking about this a lot, I think I naturally lean into my heritage. So the, the cultures of my heritage specifically. Why? Because I also feel that there's a power dynamic at play. I feel like my cultures of heritage have been so maligned, so pillaged, raped, um, destroyed as a result of the last 200 years, even longer, of colonialism, occupation, um, economic colonialization, that they are always at a disadvantage in every conversation. So when someone comes up to me and tells me, oh, you know, they, they love how London or New York does certain things and the culture about these or, or the West in general, how it approaches certain topics, etc. I will always defend my own. Always. Because I feel like my own has never been or never had the luxury of being able to go into that conversation as an equal player. It's interesting you should say that because there is a woman by the name of Helen... Frain, I believe, who coined this term, the universe of obligation, where she talks about how from your position of privilege, you are obliged to align yourself and create a form of solidarity with mm -hmm. the with this marginalized group. And so you naturally kind of gravitate towards them because they represent something that you uh, grew up with or they have aspects of their identity that you mm. really resonate with. So if we talk about Israel and Palestine, mm. we have a conversation surrounding, well, naturally we're going to gravitate towards uh, the Palestinian, the plight of the Palestinian people just because of that universe of obligation. We feel mm. obliged to do that. But then what happens with the argument that a woman by the name, I think, Khadija Mboe, she, she, she's a philosophical uh, commentator, and she says the only way that we can really resolve issues like that is that we have to align ourselves with the most disenfranchised group mm -hmm. because everyone's going to benefit from it. Mm -hmm. And an example she gives is like, let's just say you have somebody who is disabled that can't go up the stairs, you create like a ramp for them mm -hmm. to go up. But what you're actually helping is you're helping, you know, a, a mother with a pram trying to go up those stairs mm -hmm. or a child that can't go up the stairs or an elderly person going up those stairs. So mm -hmm. you help the collective. But that's given, uh, we're making assumptions that this society is also like predicated on the premise of collective good mm -hmm. and like, and growth. But I think power today is basically defined from the top up. It's the hierarchy structure is entirely different. People in privilege look to like, they want to consolidate their privilege as opposed to alleviating it for the sake of anybody else because people within that privilege are looking for ways to um, solidify the privilege they have. It's not about like letting more people into the circle. It's more about keeping people out. Mm. Um, and I think that's what I love specifically about our cultures is that there is a kind of entrenched collective good within them if we allow ourselves to see it. But to continue that analogy that you said about the um, how society might help like dis disabled people going up the stairs, for mm -hmm. example, I, I don't think our culture is even disabled. I don't mm -hmm. even think it's got to that extent. I think our cultures are actually like intuitively still rooted in beautiful traditions and lessons and and um, and systems that have such amazing collective benefit for the human experience today. But society has ignored them 
or mm. doesn't deem them as valuable. Can you give an example of that? So I think the family structure, mm. when I think of the family structure today, and I think we live in a kind of global consumerist capitalist society that has basically put the individual at the foreground, foreground of everything. The individual is his own universe, right? Whereas we were raised in communities and tribes and villages that actually collective good had immense benefit to society. And you're not the center of the universe. You are perambulating around values and tradition and and collective togetherness. And for me, that's really beautiful, right? Now we look at like what capitalist society results in, which is like vehement depression, increased divorce rates. We think about how everything in society in the city that I grew up in London that people are struggling with is because of the breakdown of these traditional structures, right? I think what jars me the most is when now we have this new era of spiritualism and we have like people from the West, you know, white people who are anthropologists and psychiatrists who've basically repackaged the core premises of our traditions and our Absolutely. culture in our village. And like they're telling us what we've intuitively already known but so deep is the mental colonialization and the degradation of self and, and they've made us feel so low about our own self-esteem that we can't even see the value in what we've intuitively or always had in fact we hate it think about it as young arabs how many of us have run away from family traditions and run away from the things that we like grew up actually hating and feeling constrained by but uh, white people are now telling us that there's value in it for us to actually understand that, oh, maybe we were sitting on something before. And that really jars me because it's such a twisted way for us to be perceiving ourselves, for the white man ultimately to be taking the gold or the essence of what we are about and telling us that it's worthy and worthwhile before we actually see it. So That's so funny you should say that because I literally just listened to an interview with a woman by the name, she's a, a writer and a journalist by the name of Louise Perry. She does exactly what you're saying. She, she speaks on traditions and norms and values that are clearly, clearly, without a shred of a doubt, coming from either Arab culture mm. or Islamic culture or whatever the case may be. And she almost whitewashes or glosses over yeah. certain aspects of it and cherry picks what's convenient and then dresses it up as this sort of move towards conservatism or this move towards like being perceptive of other cultures and understanding that there is merit to dressing more modestly and there is merit to having homosocial relationships that men should be you know with men and women should be with women and there's nothing wrong with a man being a care mm. like a breadwinner and a woman being a caregiver and it's like well those practices still exist in the Arab world and we do this all the time and yeah. we have family members that practice this on a daily it's it's yeah. it just seems ridiculous that that's the case and you know how do we argue that 100 percent, and i and i witness it all the time i have a lot of friends in that world this kind of new i don't know how we call it we call it like a nouveau spiritualism right like mm -hmm. this this spiritualism light it's mm -hmm. like this kind of people who've left or kind of feel alienated from religion per se, but like have entered into this new kind of Western idea of what it means to be mindful and what it means to be like, you know, those guys that tell you about circadian rhythm and like aligning with the earth's planet, et cetera. But, but at its core, like I feel deeply uncomfortable around it. Why? Because I feel like it's so baseless. It lacks discipline. Um, it's all about the self ultimately. Why? Because the religion of the West has been capitalism for the last X amount of years. So people are starting to realize that actually the society that they're living in is making them feel deeply unhappy, that they're trying to find spiritual purpose without detaching from putting themselves at the core mm -hmm. and the individual, which is what consumer society has taught them. They are the most important thing. And they're kind of entering spirituality in that kind of same space. And like, they don't realize that actually what we 
I think intuitively understand as people of traditional indigenous cultures and religions that spirituality is embedded in the collective, mm-hmm. right? You cannot be spiritually liberated until your neighbor is mm-hmm. and your village and, and the, the, the health of your community is dependent on one another. And um, as I grow older, I'm just lacking patience for it anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think especially now with everything that's happening in the Middle East with Gaza and Palestine, what has happened is that the veils of Western liberalism and, and progressiveness have just been lifted. Absolutely. And things that we've known all our lives, and, and maybe some people don't have the vocabulary to describe it, but in their heart, they knew that this is bullshit. Mm-hmm. Like, and I'm, and I'm kind of loving that at one level, but it's cost too many lives at the same time. Unfortunately, yeah. And like, what I'm excited about is young Arabs, Asians, Africans, South Americans, indigenous people around the world starting to realize the power in who they are, in their culture, in their heritage, in the traditions, and taking that modern sensibility of making it relevant and cool for young people to be part of, the essence of it, but understanding its worth. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very exciting place where we're like, all right, fuck the West. Yeah. Like we've been trying to drink that Kool-Aid for too long. Or it's been imposed upon us to believe that we were yes. uh, less than, so we were obliged exactly. to, to, and to that's drink that's how it. twisted the system is, right? Like, but now I'm really excited about, oh, we know your language. We can do what you do. Now we're going to come from a place of love for who we are and really kind of consolidate that relationship with it. And I think that's a really powerful place. I'm really excited about that. It's interesting because you mentioned this idea of them sort of centering themselves in, in, the, in the conversation. And by them, I mean the West. This philosopher, it was a Taoist philosopher, he had a dream that he was a butterfly and that dream was so vivid. And then he woke up from the dream and realized, oh, actually, I'm, I'm human. Where he thought, well, maybe I am the butterfly and I'm dreaming of being human. Mm. And so it kind of twists this idea on its head that actually anything within your mind's eye is your reality and everything that exists outside of it is not real, Mm. is not true reality. Mm. And I feel like everyone feels so entitled to their position. They feel they're Mm. always right, uh, defined as solipsism. But why do you think people are shifting so much and believing that like their belief system, even with it as like as what's happening here with the Israeli-Palestinian genocide, like how that they truly believe in their heart of hearts that what is happening in Palestine is invalid and not real and they aren't as marginalized as they believe that they are. Where do you think that line of logic stems from? I actually think like there's a there's been a very deliberate attempt to convolute inherent truth, right? So like we talk about like a post-truth, post-modern society. It's about everything is relative. Like our experiences are relative to us. So in that case, what's true and what's false is entirely experiential given the individual and, and, their st- and, and their life and how they've arrived at the point that they are. But I, you know, I, I, grew, I grew up with the concept that we say in Arabic called fitra, which is like your inherent instinctual sense of morality, that the human conscious understands a basic truth that killing another person is wrong. It's not relative, it's wrong by any standard or by any measure, by any criteria. And I think what society today has done through whether it's philosophy or whether it's through politics or media has basically tried to confuse us that there are multiple truths out there that um by muddying the water our sense of morality and ethics become skewed in the context of complex politics and 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 difficult situations which require us to have lots of knowledge around when actually like a lot of the most complicated things around us are actually very simple and i think the loss of life is one of those examples of how can it ever be justifiable for like young children to be killed mm-hmm. on mass? Like that is for me an objective evil, mm-hmm. right? That needs to be curbed and stopped. That can never be justified. So I think actually what I'm starting to learn is like 
Whereas before I was a lot more nervous to like lean into things that I, I felt were true. Now I will call it as that, where mm -hmm. I think, no, it's wrong, categorically. Mm -hmm. Whereas before you're trying to navigate, you're trying to make all the table happy and being like, maybe things are a little bit more convoluted, et cetera. And, and like, and now I'm just kind of like, nah, like I, I, I believe in my inherent fitra to tell me whether something is wrong or right. And I, and, and I think in the, in the context of killing and mass murder, like there's no justification for it at all. So then where does the essence of indoctrination come into play with that type of attitude? Because someone could make that argument and say, well, you know, I'm playing devil's advocate, but then say like, oh, well, I was led to believe or I was indoctrinated to believe this. Yeah, great question. I, I actually think that's bullshit. Mm -hmm. And like, as maybe I'm getting older, but I just feel like my patience with that, I think intellectual laziness is also unforgivable. Mm -hmm. It's like, there is a world in which we're living and traversing in, and it deserves for you to have some sort of curiosity to understand it at some basic level. But for you to look at a situation and be like, oh, I don't know enough about it, or, or believe simply what's being told around you and not actually have some sort of base knowledge or do the work yourself, um, you really only have yourself to blame, mm. in my opinion. I, I think there's so much knowledge out there. And, you know, we're going to continue with the example of Israel and Palestine. This is one of the world's most polarizing, controversial and devastating thing that's happened in the last 50 years, mm. right? If you haven't thought, let me look into this a bit more, then it tells me that you operate and you live and you navigate through this world. I'm sorry, but like really like ignorantly, you're quite happy to know less because it makes you feel better or you don't want to feel bad about a situation. But surely... Suffering on that scale deserves us to have a little bit more than a superficial education around it. That's how I feel about it. And ultimately, this is what frustrates me with this, like we said, Noivo spiritualism, that like, you know, the yogis and white people going to Bali, etc. So based on the individual, my self-development. But really, for me, I was taught spirituality was like understanding the ethics of the world, but also in the through the injustices of it. Mm -hmm. Like, how can I observe an injustice happen of people being killed around the world? And my spirituality not have an opinion about it. Mm -hmm. My spirituality not be moved by it, mm -hmm. right? But instead be focused on my happiness. And my my happiness is predicated on how people around the world are being treated and felt. Mm -hmm. I can I do not feel happy knowing that there are people being killed and there are thousands somewhere else in the world. So that's the difference between the spirituality that I grew up in within the Middle East, East Africa and, and Southeast Asia versus the spirituality that I observe in my given environment, London, which is all about like my happiness, keeping positive energy around me, like being super happy and, and working on who I am. You know, we could always talk about different, I guess, trajectories that identity can spin off of. But one aspect of identity that I find really interesting is identity gatekeeping. And when people feel that they need to gatekeep mm. something because it has to follow a specific understanding. And there are many examples I can think of the top of my head that that fit that narrative. So why do you think people cling on to certain markers of identity, I guess, maybe in fear of change? Because you even said in the beginning that, you know, it's changing and moving with you as you evolve. So when someone kind of puts their foot down and says, no, this is the way it has to be. Why do you think that people do that? Why do you think that they, they need to do that? Yeah, 100%. And I know we talk a lot about this within your given Emirati experience and you being half Syrian as well and like, and also being born and raised from outside the country, but coming in and being emotionally attached to this place, but not feeling like you kind of are accepted within the Emirati norm mm -hmm. and within my environment also. Growing up, I always just wanted to be Yemeni enough, Yemeni enough, Indonesian enough, East African enough, Pakistani enough. So I there is this kind of, crystallization of identity. And I think the reason why is because a lot of society is built around a norm, 
an ideal which is defined and understood between a collective body of people. So when something comes and challenges that, perceiving identity as a defined box that needs to be protected and preserved, we've completely misunderstood the power of identities, right? And I think what we've done, and, I, I, and I'm really not that kind of guy that likes to blame the West and colonization for everything. <laughs> but, but. Like, <laughs> but what we've done is really adopt this Westphalian state system, which was basically cutting up land in terms of borders and states, right? And that kind of European idea of identity, what's mine and what's yours, borders, land control, um, was kind of projected out into the world through colonization. So when they come to the Middle East and you talk about the Balfour Act, you talk about the Sykes-Pico, like drawing up the Middle East in, in, in kind of really haphazard lines, which have no kind of indication of how people moved and felt and how cultural was fluid, was projected onto a people. So what happens when suddenly you have Jordan and you have Palestine and you have Lebanon, which were traditionally like fluid borders, now there are lines between them. Each state needs to define its identity in a way that differs from another. So to be Palestinian is to trees and it's like like certain sakhan and certain foods, but to be Lebanese is like a whole different identity and, 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 and the things that they kind of latch around as a Lebanese people are different also at the same time. Their identity starts to separate from one another. That consolidates their relationship with themselves more. At the same time, it alienates them from one another. But look, the power in our people, especially within the Middle East and especially Southeast Asia, East Africa especially, the power in our people is that these lines were never, never existed. They were fluid. People moved, people intermarried amongst tribes, um, whether politically or for social benefits. And as a result, you see so much similarities between people, right? And what we call now today in Syria and Palestine, things were not so rigid and defined and confined as well. Always Bilal Sham, so. Exactly, 100%. So like, I think um, these are hangups. These are, these are, it's a colonial hangover and something that we've adopted. And I think, especially in the, in the case of the Middle East, people are seeking pride of who they are, when actually I think the strength in our identity and the strength in who we are is how open and welcoming we were. Even the Emirates, which is a long history of migration coming in, whether it's Iran or South Asia or East Africa, the Emirates itself has been like a, junk, a juncture or it's been a, it's been a space in which so much migration and beautiful cultures came in and contributed to the lexicon and vocabulary of what it is to be an Emirati today, right? But today, it's a lot more rigid and defined. So when someone like Sara Al-Gorubi comes- <laughs> Don't as, even start. challenging what Emirati <laughs> identity and conscientiousness is, they get threatened by it. Why? Because ultimately it's still a, a very foreign notion of identity being projected on the people who never felt that way. When we talk about identity, I don't perceive identity as these kind of stereotypical markers, whether, and I've said this before, like with the falcon or the eagle, mm. or the way that you dress, those are not markers of identity. For me, as you said, it's hospitality, it's generosity, it's conviction in what you believe, it's this idea of being open and welcoming and receptive and resilient and all of these different qualities. That is what makes identity how it is. And what I find unfolds in a really unfortunate way is that identity is often through the lens of the West. So whatever identity markers that seem to be perpetuated in society as these kind of benchmarks of what it means to be a certain nationality, those are what the West perceives mm. because it's a watered down, diluted version of what the essence and core of identity mm. should be mm -hmm. in the Middle East. And that's what I have a problem with. Mm. So I think that when we go back to the idea of gatekeeping or this idea of protection, it's, it's also out of fear of having this Western sort of ideology of maybe infiltrating it in a way that isn't beneficial to the development of said identity or the growing identity yeah, as yeah. you as you mentioned it. But I think it goes back to calling into question, we're like, well, who's running the show? Like who really is the target audience when it comes to the projection of said identity? And I think when you talk about people, whether it's Emiratis, whether it's Saudis, whether it's 
they are the target audience because they know they are the indigenous people. They are the ones, they are the lay of the land. So they should be the ones to guide the sort of identity development down the path of righteousness, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I wanted to kind of bring back this idea of when we speak of identity, mm -hmm. we talk about how the West likes to modernize the way that Arab identity is being restitched and repackaged with a pretty bow of what the West is yearning for. This idea of a more conservative way of looking at the sexual marketplace, dating, all of that kind of stuff that, you know, maybe there is merit to not having a relationship that isn't going to result in marriage. And so my question is, what does the future look like for the West if they continue to kind of pull at the at the at the heartstrings of of the Middle East and kind of stitch their own narrative together. We always have this struggle between our religion, our culture, and modernity. All of us have had that in some sort of given environment, whether it was through like romance, and maybe you felt compelled like you wanted to date and meet someone in a very modern way, but then your culture and tradition told you otherwise that you felt guilty that you couldn't do that. And we all we've all been there. But what is modern? Right. When you said modern way, what do you mean by that? Like when I mean modern, I mean more kind of Western. Yeah, I mean like that that the the challenges and what, what I want to say is that like it's always about interrogating what's the essence of our culture I've always been I don't know maybe it's me but I've always been like fuck the west right like first I start from a place of value within my culture so let's say like let's play that out in a real life situation when let's say it's about romance right which I very rarely talk about but like there are certain things that I really value about what my culture and my faith has like taught me about romantic context right chivalry, honor, respecting a woman. But the values that you spoke about just now, this idea of honor and respect and, you know, Islamic values and whatnot, that gets translated to the West as oppressive. Where is that and line? I'm being very careful not to talk in universal languages because the way I was raised was very unique. And I think I have to caveat that because a lot of people are raised with technically by title, the same religion, the same culture, but also have a very different association with them. But I was, and, and, and why context is important, I was born and raised by two parents who were so like, like nurtured a sense of love about all of these things in me, right? I was taught not from a place of fear. You can do this, you can't do that. Yeah, this is halal, the haram, mm -hmm. right? It was so much more fluid, natural. They understood that, look, if I love who I am, then I will behave in a way that's in accordance with this love. And as a result, I was a much more grounded person as a young, I'm actually more rebellious now than I was as a teen and, and early, early 20s. And, um, and I think why that's key is that I understood like, when I was in these spaces and you're, you know, I'm a young youth and I'm na navigating like hedonistic London and you go do go to parties and there's like drugs on cocaine on the table, people getting at the X, Y, Z. And I was like, I didn't want to partake in any of that. Why? Because I was grounded in a sense of worth or in a sense of like, I love who I am and I loved what my parents had taught me about who I was that I always felt like I wanted to respect that. And I think some people have a very different experience where like it's imposed on them. You're made to do these certain things. You cannot go out beyond a certain time. This is haram, this is halal, and this is how you're going to conduct your life. And experiences are taken away from them. So when they get a degree of freedom in their life and they're allowed to navigate it freely, or maybe you know, they're studying abroad or whatever, they lash out. Complete opposite, pendulum experience. They go from one extreme to another. And I can't really relate to that because I felt like my grounding was really like always in the middle. So so I, I, I feel like um, I'm always interrogating whether it's romance, work, life, family. I'm always interrogating like what is the West trying to impose in me or what I think I should be doing in this context versus um, coming from who I am and that place of love and then trying to find a balance between because we also have to accept that like we are. The West is this hegemonic culture which has defined who we are. We all watch the same movies. We all watch the same cartoons. We all have the same 
references, say music, know, art, but culture. But we are not a monolith. We yes, as Arabs are exactly. not a monolith. So then we kind of, um, we confront that in a way that is maybe a little bit of a dichotomy in our minds. But I mean, we can navigate it, as you said, being Arab or being raised abroad. We have that that privilege. And I, and I do believe it's a privilege. But what grinds my gears, and you were talking about this idea of like going from one extreme to the next, mm. is that... I am so sick and tired. I've said this before. I am so sick and tired of Arabs making the assumption that being considered open-minded is gallivanting down this path of engaging in Western values. And that's what they view as open-mindedness. So yeah. it's like, oh, if I'm partying, if I'm drinking, if I'm like dating outside of like what is considered halal, I'm so open-minded. And it's yeah. just like, I'm sick exactly. and tired of, uh, of hearing that. Yeah, because what so. that ends up doing is that People gauge you, right? You have friends that gauge you and they're just like, oh, do you want to have a drink? Do you want to no, no, do, do that? And then that's their way of seeing, like, oh. is he open-minded enough for me? And you're like, hold on a second, sweet cheeks. Like, let's take it back a notch mm. and know, realize that the true definition of open-mindedness is the ability to understand, respect, take on and interpret cultures, traditions, religions, and experiences outside of ourselves with a level of understanding and decorum. Besides, we're not coming from a position of like thinking that we're entitled or we're better. And I think that that gets lost in translation with this idea of open-mindedness. Yeah, no, totally. Look, look I, I really resonate with that. Like I would get so frustrated coming to the Middle East to visit family since I was a child and, and coming having almost a second home here and like um and I would felt or I felt like I was more misunderstood here than I was back home yeah. I always tell people controversially interestingly that I think the best city to grow up as a Muslim and perhaps an Arab is London why because there is no state-sponsored religion you can have on one spectrum a crazy Salafi super conservative Muslim on one end of the spectrum on the other you can have some like drag queen like super out there fabulous but also identifies as a muslim and everything in between right and london accommodates for that whereas i come here and i would get so frustrated because i would go to a party in the middle east for example and let's use that as a reference because mm. a lot of people young people are probably going through similar things or you go to a gathering or house party and there'd be alcohol and you'd be like oh no i don't drink and then suddenly it's like an elephant in the room. Oh yeah, right? absolutely. There's this vacuum. Yeah, yeah. It's like air has been taken out of the space. And then they start to feel like, oh, look at you. And they start judging yeah, you as yeah, a result yeah. of that. Ibn Halal, oh, ma yeah. you know, mashallah, mashallah. Like, and, and what is happening in that experience, right? And I think a lot of people just cannot believe why, because they associate religiosity with backwardness, mm -hmm. less educated. And as a result of the colonial legacy, again, mm -hmm. to be speaking French or to be speaking English is seen as like, higher status being more educated by you drinking you're more aligned with like what the white people came and did and you align with a certain status and class as mm -hmm. a result of it mm -hmm. so by me being in these spaces by but not doing or not conforming to the norm in them people felt like their criteria or their ability to put me in a box had completely diminished they felt insecure because i think it's like you're basically holding a mirror to them also so what it does is they feel uncomfortable because now they're made to question about whether or not what they're doing is bad or not. Yeah. And I think ultimately the crazy thing is I don't give a shit. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, bro, like, I don't care if it's here. I don't care if it's not here. Chill. You but do they you. need an ally. They need an ally in that type of dynamic. And like, look, 
just a disclaimer, this is not everyone we're talking about. This is a very particular group of people. But when you have that group of people that like to identify as like very open-minded or very westernized or very this, it's like they use it to break down the walls between their fellow Arabs in order to bond over Western ideologies and Western constructs. And it but the truth of the matter is, is that for me, at least, it builds up the wall. It doesn't break it down because mm. then it makes me believe like, oh, actually, you are that insecure in your sense of self mm. that you believe that in order for me to to accept you and to align myself with you, I have to conform or feel peer pressured to exist in your comfort zone. I have to reorient myself to fit your comfort zone, which isn't even a culture that you belong in. You borrowed it. Yeah. So it's that's the thing that drives me insane. Yeah, I mean, look, what, what are we saying very simply? We're basically saying, like, uh, uh, within my experience, it was it was it was a lot more difficult here because people couldn't put me in a box. I didn't conform to the typical boxes of either you were super religious and like didn't turn up at certain spaces, or you were super liberal and and you pray. That's crazy. What a wild thought, right? Mm -hmm. So there were these defined boxes and I felt like I didn't prescribe to any of the two. Whereas in London, I felt like actually there was a much more of a varied Muslim Arab experience, right? Mm -hmm. That for me is indicative of this identity politics we play in our own houses, right? And like, I, I really struggled with that. You're a social media personality. You've been online for how many years now? Five. Five years. And you've done so much. You've shared food, you've shared experiences, histories, and, and people really love and respect and they resonate with it. Has anyone felt that you've pushed something too far or you've shone a light on something that they didn't find important or maybe relevant? Did you get any sort of negative feedback from it? Yeah, 100%. I think like it tries to tackle some of the world's like most controversial or difficult or meaningful topics um and as a result people have very staunch beliefs around it but ultimately i like to come from a source of inspiration and love for culture and and bring people together but there are some things that i talk about which are difficult like one of the videos i'm coming out with in a couple of weeks is about this uh lebanese nigerian community where um you know in the early 20th century there was a huge migration of lebanese on their way to south america some didn't make it there so some settled in west africa and usually when two communities settle in the same space there's assimilation over time, there's a mixing and fluidity of culture, fusion food. In the case of the Lebanese Nigerians, there's none. In fact, actually, wow. there's a complete separation. Lebanese did their thing, Nigerians did their things, but the Lebanese went on to become incredible businessmen and made loads of money through diamond trades and other businesses in the region. And it created tension because there was this like poor West African community. And then you had this like vehemently wealthy Lebanese community and tensions between them two arose. Whereas in South America, there was a lot of assimilation and fusion. Taco Arabes, there was like Lebanese food and, and, and South American food was becoming one the communities were intermarrying but not in west africa and why what does that tell us and like some of the difficult lessons there are the realities of colorism racism why are one community more willing to assimilate with one than the other and south america arguably has a lot more in common with the lebanese and middle eastern community as a whole in terms of physicality and how they look but in west africa that was very different and i think that, that that's a difficult lesson to take right and like, I know I'm kind of freaking out because I put it out, not freaking out, but like, I know it will be a difficult thing for people to hear, mm. especially like in the context of today and getting us to accept that perhaps that we as Arabs do have internal colorism and racism towards people of the African continent, etc. And and telling people that and, and trying to get people to learn from that could be very difficult. So stuff like that, I know will be controversial, but I still feel like compelled to do it because within my own 
ethical creative framework, I think it's an important lesson to learn. And as someone who's part African and part Arab, I've witnessed it within my with my within my life. So yes, you do. But when you you know if you're gonna get in this game, you have to have an, a, a thick skin. There's no you have no place in this world if you are super sensitive. But I say that, but we are still very sensitive, all of us. And the one thing that I get hurt by is when people attack my integrity or my sense of ethics and morals and as someone who got into this space to shout for what he believes in, when people question that, it's very difficult. But I think what made me survive this world and anyone thinking about getting into this world is I have such a loving, core, stable support network around me. I have an incredible family. I had two parents that loved each other, but loved us also. But a broader village community that educated me, informed me, made me feel safe. And as a result of that, I feel like whatever I do in this world, I have something to fall back on. Mm. A lot of people I think struggle in it do not have such a stable core foundation. And when, uh, when thousands of people are coming at them, they feel like their whole world is coming down. So um, that's helped me with it. Yeah, I think it takes a certain type of personality to be able to handle backlash, whether it's on social media, from yeah. the position of just getting small comments here and there to like full blown cancellation. But, so, but social media has also like kind of lifted the veil on a lot of human psyche as well, right? Oh yeah, humanity being questioned. I think it's kind of like created an unhealthy consumer behavior as well, right? We talk so much about the actions of people who are content creators, but how many of us talk about the etiquette and the behavior of people who watch social media? What happens is you have these public personalities who stop becoming human anymore. And you feel like you can say and do anything to these people that you would never do to the human that you meet in the street. But you develop parasocial relationships with these individuals. So you feel entitled to their yeah. lives. But at the same time, you're also willing to say things to them you'd never say to anyone in your real life, mm -hmm. right? Or attack them or, or in, the, in the case of women, which is, you know, a lot worse, um, physically shame them, um, physically say things about them. And I think, uh, and, and people stop remembering that these are real people behind these screens trying to do the best they can within a given environment. Where is the compassion in that interaction? Where is the nuance? Where is the understanding in that? Um, and what happened to believing in retribution? Some people do make mistakes in the public domain. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying they're infallible. I'm not saying that like people with public platforms should never be challenged. What I am saying that there is an etiquette in which we could have, which would raise our community as opposed to destroying it as soon as it puts a step wrong. Do you and believe in the culture of redemption? 100%. Look, one thing about our communities is that we love, we love a racks to riches story. We love venerating heroes that we've put there in the first place. But the only story we love more is tearing them down. Right? The richest to rag story, tearing down the heroes that we put there in the first place. Something about that experience validates us, right? Oh, I knew he was an asshole. I knew he wasn't that great, right? Something about invalidating someone else validates my existence and why maybe perhaps I haven't done all the things that maybe I wish I could have done in my life, right? And social media is a perfect landscape for that kind of really toxic environment. And I think we have to be more cognizant of all of our collective responsibility in the social media space to just be a bit more nice. Mm. Shit, man, just be good people. Like, it's funny because as a culture, we have so much emphasis on adabs and etiquette and like treating each other with, you know, ihtiram and like respect and love. And, and that goes out the window when it comes to social media. I've seen, I've witnessed people slating yeah. other people online and it's you're like, like where horrible. did that come it's from? Really venomous. It's yeah, horrible. it really, really is. But like, where is that culture and that, that, that emphasis on, on, on adabs in the online space? Well, when we talk about the way that social media has evolved in terms of being basically the prime source for news, because mm -hmm. we can't even, you know, trust the news anymore, they become the voice of the people. Mm -hmm. What? How do you feel about the language surrounding certain situations being used to 
foster or promote a certain agenda, like the situation that's going on right now with the with the war, that there are so many terms that are getting thrown around. And, you know, it's so interesting because I find that people here, we can we can spot it a mile away. We can sniff it out. And we're like, uh, did you catch that? The, that? That term was repeated or that word was used or that phrasing was different versus some people in the West are like, nope, goes right over their head. So why do you feel like we are less susceptible to this kind of gaslighting agenda? I, I think what's what baffles me in the world and the things that we think are so obvious, they're like so clear as day, how some people can be so ignorant towards our experiences. I think there's a pure core humanity that everyone's capable of. Like I said, that fitra. And I think what shapes your instincts is your conditioned environment. I, I have to believe that in everyone, there is a person worth connecting with and saving. I have to believe that otherwise, like I, I can't for the sake of how I traverse this world, like in hope, to believe that there are inherently evil people out there that would wish badly on people hurts me. It's like crazy. Like, what, why are we here? But I do believe in people's twisted way, they, they think they are doing the right thing because of their conditioned environment. Because there are people that also just feel evil, right? Maybe I'm being a bit like too hopeful, but in a lot of interactions that I've come across, especially in the West, I think you, you feel this more in New York. I think one of the people that give me so much hope is Jewish Voice for Peace because they are literally detaching themselves from safety, privilege and their tribe to speak up for something. Right. And in that context of other people who are a bit more hardline attacking them and all that kind of stuff, I'm like, the, these people really believe what they believe. And like when you're trying to express an alternative view, they cannot relate to it. Why? Because I don't think they've experienced anything like what we've experienced. And you need to be able to have that to be able to empathize with people, which is ultimately why I got into what I do. The whole storytelling world that I'm, I'm part of right now, the underlying inspiration behind being part of it is to be able to create universal human stories that give people from outside of my experience a glimpse into the humanity that we share, that we share together. This is why I think people of our backgrounds, we need to lean into that heritage, into that, into that calling, into that responsibility of being storytellers being cultural producers, being people who are able to not only like tell stories that resonates within their circle, but tells a broader picture of who we are, leans into the specificity of who we are, but tells a universal global story. It's very different. It's a very unique skill, right? Of making someone who's like lives in white suburban Texas, who watches a story about me and is like, that's a cool guy. I like this guy. Why? Because what you've done is create a window of empathy for him to be able to see you as like not some scary alien Arab that isn't deserving of a human consideration and love, compassion and empathy. And, you know, I, I, what I've come to realize is that this is our Imana. Literally, you know, we as someone who lives in the West, this is my front line. When I think about how I can contribute to making a more compassionate world to literally stop Palestinian lives being killed. And like what we could be doing, we have to be creating stories, incredible things, putting them out there in the world that allow people to glimpse us as more. It's unfair that we have to do this, that we have to constantly be in a state of like addressing stereotypes and prejudice about our people. But who are we to despair when people are literally losing their lives as a result of it? So look, I'm, I, I feel really passionate about telling stories and like putting work in the world that creates universal and human connection between people because i feel really like if we lean into that it allows more people to empathize with one another from outside of their given experience and that likelihood of gaslighting happening or just total ignorance towards our people is less likely in a context in which we feel like the other person on the other side is human like me on that note nadir thank you so much for being here <laughs> for um me. we've run out of time unfortunately we could talk for the next seven thousand hours but thank you so much for being here and for those of you who are listening or watching please like subscribe hit the notification bell and we will see you next time bye